Uh, we've actually been doing a, in a teaching series uh, entitled Be. And we've been talking about and exploring in the scriptures who God has created us to be. Some of those things being uh, very unique parts of who we are. They're unique to us, uh, the unique way that God has created us. And some of those are, are uh, universal, things that God has created to be true of us and the way that he's called us to live out of that. And so last week, or two weeks ago, rather, uh, we talked about these three spaces. And essentially what we're talking about is what it means to be a sent people, as followers of Jesus, to be a sent people into three relational spaces. Um, this week, what I want to do is I want to, to look at this idea of being sent and, and the nature of what it means to be sent. Right? I want to look at it as, at, at the, the source of what it means to be sent and the root that uh, specifically in the person of Jesus. Um, and so just to give credit where credit's due, um, there, you know, when I come up and I teach, like I pull from a lot of different sources. There's a lot of, you can about imagine there's been some guys smarter than me over the last 2,000 years uh, that have followed Jesus, a lot of them. And uh, people that have poured over the scriptures and devoted their lives to following Jesus and being his people in the world. And so I'm always pulling. Um, this Sunday, particularly, I'm pulling pretty heavily from a guy named Michael Frost. And Michael Frost is an Australian uh, scholar, professor, missiologist, all-around stud. Um, I want to be him when I grow up. Uh, guy. And he's written some great books. And so, like, if this strikes a chord and you want to dig in further, like, there's some great books uh, that he's written, uh, including uh, Exiles, which is fantastic. His newest book is called The Road to Missional. Uh, Read Jesus. Great stuff. And in fact, so I follow Michael Frost on Twitter, and he responded to one of my tweets this week. Don't want to brag, but just saying. And uh, I was so pumped, you know, when I, like, my phone told me, I was like, what? Michael Frost is tweeting me. And then I looked, and he was correcting something that I said. <laughs> I had given him credit for a quote that wasn't his. So he's like, hey, thanks for giving me credit for that, but that was somebody else. Um, so, yeah, it's like, just, you know, destroyed me. So we're like this, me and Michael. But, uh, but I'm going to be pulling pretty heavy from, from him this morning and talking about what it means to be sent. So whenever you talk about what it means to be sent, um, if you do a word search on what it means to be sent and this idea of sentness and the Christian conversation, the biblical conversation, there's a passage of Scripture that we always inevitably find ourselves coming back to. Um, and I mentioned it just briefly a couple weeks ago, and I want to look at that to begin this morning. And that's in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. And this is what it says. It says, and then Jesus said to them, uh, to them, his disciples, to us, those of us who call ourselves his disciples, just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, before we jump in, I want to take a moment for us to consider together the fact that 2,000 years later, we gather in a room this morning to explore together what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm well aware of the fact that, that you know, a number of people who are part of this community wouldn't call themselves disciples of Jesus. They wouldn't call themselves followers of Jesus. And we love that. We love that we're that kind of a community uh, where that can continue to happen. Uh, but obviously, a number of us in this room do consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus. And so when, for us, when we gather in this room, right, we are gathering to worship Jesus uh, to honor him with our, our gifts and our generosity, to invest in, in his ministry through the church. Uh, we're here to, to, to open up the scriptures so that we can come to know him more fully, uh, to, to know him more intimately. 
And in this particular passage, this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. Okay, so everything that essentially happened in Jesus' life is on the tail end of this statement. Right? Jesus has walked, he has ministered, um, he has since died, just as he said he would, willingly, for our sin. And then he has risen again three days later, right? presenting himself to hundreds of witnesses. And then this. Calls it, right? He calls his disciples in the beginning, the healings, the miracles, the teachings, and the betrayal. In the cross. And three days later he gets up. He says, what? And then he says this. Right? Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I believe that this particular statement, right, with where it is placed in the Scriptures, this is, this is the crescendo of everything that Jesus has done up until this point. Right? This is uh, the, the culminating words of Jesus' ministry. He does all those things and then says this, just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. I believe what you have here is the culminating expression, the culmination of what it means to follow Jesus now. Here, in this day and age, what he calls us to. Just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Right? And, and the interesting thing about this passage, right, the Great Commission is important. A lot of churches talk about the Great Commission. right? But one of the things that I've heard expressed by scholars is that in many ways the Great Commission isn't anything particularly new. Jesus is just saying, yeah, go out and make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptize them. Basically all the stuff I already told you, go do that. But in this particular passage, Jesus tells us not only that we're to be sent as followers of Jesus, but he tells us the way in which we're to be sent. Not just that we're sent into the world, not just the nature of the mission to which we have been called, but the very character of what that mission is to be like. It is to be as the Father sent the Son. This is how the Gospel of John ends, right? The end of Jesus' public ministry. And so what I want to do is I want to look at how it begins. Right? If this is what we are called to, then I want to look at the way the Father sent the Son. And, and th- while this is how John ends his Gospel, he begins it uh, in the most surprising of ways, the most unexpected of ways, especially for religious people. Though if you understand, it's it's not that surprising because what Jesus is going to do is what he said. is He's going to begin his ministry in the very way that he means to continue it. So what I want to do is I want to look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2. At this point, Jesus is just three days into his public ministry. Just three days in. We don't know much about him at this point. He's 30. Uh, We know he's a carpenter. But as far as we can tell, he hasn't achieved a whole lot. The scriptures don't really speak to that, kind of classic underachiever. Um, it's weird. In some ways, it almost seems like God just got up one day and was like, all right, time to get busy. Still living with mom. All right, I'm going to move out and do my work. Uh, we don't know a whole lot. But what we do know at this point, he's 30 years old, he's a carpenter, but he's three days in. Three days into his ministry, he's got five followers. Five followers. So this is where the story uh, picks up. This is where we're jumping in. So John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Okay, so immediately I have a question, right? Why, why is Jesus invited to this wedding? Right, it's not, from what we can tell, it's not relatives. Uh, he's not from Cana. It's not where he lives. But he's been invited. Why has he been invited? Right, one commentator suggests, well, you know, it was actually custom for prominent influential teachers to be invited to weddings because uh, it was good for the groom and the bride's public image. 
Right? But is Jesus a prominent, influential teacher at this point? How long has he been on the, on the job? Three days. How many people are following him at this point? Five people. Five people. He didn't even get his own guys. He stole them from his cousin. Right? He stole them from a crazy cousin. I mean, if, if you walked into a church today and you saw a pastor up on the, on the stage preaching his guts out and five people in the pews... Right, what you, what's your response going to be? Are you going to think that is an influential man? A revolutionary of sorts. This guy's going to turn the world upside down. I need to connect myself to him because that's going to be good for my image. Right, no, you're going to be like, dude, you're a pastor of five people. You are a loser. Not very good at your job, apparently. Right? Check the tennis shoes. Are they wearing matching shoes? Is there Kool-Aid involved? Because it seems more like a cult to me than a church. Right? You're not going to attach yourself and say, this guy, this guy. I need to be connected to him. Right? Why are they invited? I would suggest, and I'm speculating a little, a little bit at this point, could it be possible that Jesus is invited just because people love to be with Jesus? Because he was fun to be around? Have you ever thought about Jesus that way? Because what we do find in the rest of his story, the rest of his ministry and life, is that people love to be with Jesus. Not everybody. Right? The self-righteous, the self-proclaimed, very religious, couldn't stand him. Right, started plotting to kill him pretty early in his ministry, eventually pulled that off. But ordinary people, notorious sinners, the kind that wore their sin right here on their sleeve, love to be with Jesus. Love to be with Jesus. Could it be that he was invited to this wedding just because, you know what? They wanted Jesus to be there. Because he's the life of the party. People loved being with him. But I don't know. But that would definitely be consistent with the rest of his life and ministry. So he was invited to the wedding on the third day. A uh, wedding took place at Canaan and Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. That's a problem. No more wine. If you've ever been to a really good party, perhaps college days, frat party, you know that when the drinketh is goneth, the party is over, right? Uh, you know, and especially if it's too late for a B-W-E-W-R-U-N beer run and the shops are closed, party's over. Right, this would have been the case here. And it, only heavier, only far worse. Uh, because the way that it worked in this time is like when you threw a wedding celebration for your family, uh, for your bride-to-be and, and for the groom, basically the whole village would come and they would party often for over a week. These people knew how to party. This was a massive celebration. Right, to have to end that celebration potentially days early because you failed to prepare would have been, I mean, it would have been a social shame. It would have been disgraceful. And it's hard for us to fully relate with this. What would happen at this time is when a father at this, in Jesus' day would, would have a daughter, what he would do is on the day of her birth, uh, he would go over to his, his barrel of kind of vinegary, watery table wine that you just kind of throw back with your meals, and he would draw a barrel of wine. And then he would seal that up and he'd set it aside in remembrance of her birthday. Right, the next year, he would do the exact same thing. He'd take another barrel. Uh, he would come up to his, his, his vat, his barrel of table wine, this kind of vinegary, uh, tart wine, and he would draw another barrel. And then he would set that aside. And he would do that every year until her 15, 16-year birthday um, when she was to be married. Uh, and then at that time, what he would do is he'd take out 15, 16 barrels of wine for the celebration. And of course, in this moment, right, on this day, you didn't just take the stuff that you just fermented the other day, right? It's not where you start. Right? You start with the good stuff. 
But you start with that barrel of 15, 16, 17-year-old wine. And we would crack that thing open, and we'd pass out glasses and pour a glass and have a drink and toast to the father of the bride. We're saying, what kind of man are you that for 16 years you have prepared for such a day as this? And then we would work our way through 15 or 16 barrels of wine. <laughs> now remember, in this particular moment, where Jesus is at, right? Jesus is up uh, in Cana. He's in Cana, right? This is up, up north. These people were not particularly uh, sophisticated folks. They were not particularly well-educated folks, and they were especially not particularly holy folks, right? So if you had a son who was interested in rabbinical studies or who desired to be holy, uh, you would sh typically ship him down to relatives in the south right? because nothing good comes from Galilee, right? That's what they said about Jesus. Uh, they said, are you serious? Can anything good come from Galilee? Right? So you have a very interesting mix of people. What you have is a kind of a down-and-dirty neighborhood, kind of down-and-dirty type people, apparently currently working their way through 15 or 16 barrels of wine, and it's run dry. So, I mean, you have got a celebration going on. You've got people on tables. Right? You've got lampshades on heads. Right, this is a party. This is a celebration. And this is what Jesus walks into. And on this occasion, the Father has not prepared well enough. Right, not to toast, what kind of father are you who has prepared for such a day as this? But you are a father who did not prepare for such a day as this. The shame of this is something that the family would have carried for a very long time. And the kids, the, 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 gro the groom and the bride, could have taken something like this to, to mean a, a curse, a lack of blessing on their marriage. And so Mary, prompted by this social shame, prompts Jesus in verse 4. says, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. And then look how Jesus responds. I love this. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. I love that. I love that. So in this moment, Jesus chooses to act with compassion on a very ordinary couple. Right? So ordinary that we, we're not given their names. He steps into what a moment that would have been a deep social Shame and embarrassment. And he chooses, as his inaugural divine act, to step in with an act of kindness to an unnamed couple. Right? And his, his loving act is nothing short of extravagant. Right? Did you notice how much wine he made? I, I, I double-checked this. I'm not a math major, uh, but I wanted to make sure I got this right. Six barrels holding up to 30 gallons apiece. That is 180 gallons of wine. And this is, apparently, they've emptied the cupboards so far. 
And Jesus steps in and makes 180 gallons of wine. And John goes out of his way to point out that they fill them to the brim. Now, I did the math just to make sure. This is a set, almost 12 kegs of wine. In bottles, that's 908 bottles of wine that Jesus just whipped up for a wedding. I love this. This is how God chooses to launch his public ministry. I mean, this is essentially like God showing up here in this day, here and now, walking into a staunch, conservative, Baptist, traditional church. says, this place is dead. Fill the baptistry. Hand up some cups. We're about to start a movement. Right? If it was a Mennonite church, he'd have to be raising people from the dead. He'd have heart attacks all over the place. You know, Jesus wouldn't, Jesus would not even qualify to pastor in most denominations. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? I mean, are you beginning to see why the Pharisees hated Jesus? Couldn't stand him. Plotted to kill him. He was just undoing what they had been working on for a long time. And I think they hated him for a number of different reasons. I mean, one of it was theological. They did not like his teaching on grace. But I think a part, another part of that was personal. Because Jesus was just a lot more fun than they were. Or the people who couldn't stand the self-righteous loved being with Jesus. I think it drove him nuts. He acted unbecoming of a religious leader. Have you ever met somebody who takes their religion way too seriously? You know, kind of just heavy and somber and depressed. You know, I, I need things deep, right? These people say stuff like, I need deep. I need, a, I need teaching that's deep. I need to think deep. Conversations that are deep. And like, it's, there's nothing wrong with being deep, right? But you've got to come up for air every once in a while. Or are you going to die? Right? Or those around you will hope you will. Right? This is the kind of people the Pharisees were. And they just could not wrap their mind around this Jesus. Because every time they looked at him, he had a drink in one hand and a bucket of hot wings in the other, and he's telling jokes to prostitutes. Like, this can't be God. Right? This can't be God. God would not conduct himself like that. God doesn't go to parties and tell jokes to prostitutes. He doesn't make ridiculous amounts of wine. Right? They just couldn't wrap him up. God does not hang out with chain smokers with mullets who dropped out of high school and flunked auto class, right? But this is what we find Jesus doing with ordinary people. Ordinary people. Often broken people. And they loved being with him. And Jesus loved being with them. What does that tell us about the the kind of God that God is? And what does that imply about what it means to be sent? To be sent in the same way that Jesus was sent. Now, I have to take a little side trail here because for some of you, ever since I said wine, you haven't stopped thinking about that. Uh, so we have to address the alcohol issue, right? Um, which is awesome. But we do. And, and I, part of it is, I think, just the culture of Mosaic. Uh, <laughs> we have an awesome community here, very loving people, very free people, uh, very gracious people. But I, d- I would venture to guess that there's some here that might be tempted to walk out and think, okay, yeah, let's go get just blasted in Jesus' name. Just stone drunk. Hallelujah, this is the church I've been looking for my whole life. God is moving. I can feel it. Um, and that's, that's wrong. Okay, the Bible has a lot to say about drunkenness. Like, just, just Google it, you know. Google it in a BibleGateway.com or something like that, and you're going to find a lot of verses that talk specifically uh, to drunkenness. And, and so I don't want, this isn't like a free-for-all 
908 bottles of wine, pass one around, type thing. Right, the Bible has a lot to say about that. There are times that are that are really inappropriate to drink alcohol. Right, one of the, I mean, drunkenness is is a sin. Biblically, it's very clear. Right, drinking to escape your reality, right, to cope with your stress, to check out and not have to feel something for a while, is a sin. Uh, for some people, they that and this might be you, uh, you have a legitimate personal conviction from God that you are not to drink alcohol. Um, that's legitimate, and the Bible speaks to that, and that would be a sin. That would be disobedient for you to do. Right? But what, what has happened, um, sadly, recent decades and centuries in the West is, is we have taken what is a gift from God, and we have abused it oftentimes. Right? I mean, alcoholism is a legit problem here, Binge drinking is a legit problem. It's weird in Europe, you know, they drink seven to eight times more wine than we do, but they don't have the problems with alcoholism that we do. Now, I'm not, I, I don't know that I am qualified to say or speculate why that is, but it just is. And, and, and what we do is God has given us certain gifts, but those gifts can be abused and used in unhealthy ways. So wine, that is a gift. It can be abused, absolutely. Right? Food is a gift. Can it be abused? It's gluttony. Yes, it can. Right? Sexuality, sex is a gift. Can it be abused? Yes, it can. It often is. And, and in the West, in the Christian, Christianity West, kind of certain circles, what we've done is we've taken something that can be abused, although it's a gift from God, and we just kind of cut out the middleman and said, you know what, this could lead to destruction, so we're just going to make some man-made rules um, that say you can't do this. And I would argue that's just that's not biblical. That's actually exactly what the Pharisees did and what Jesus came and undid. Those man-made rules that were never from God. Um, and so are there appropriate and inappropriate times? Absolutely there are. Yeah, if, they're fr- if you have friends, and I've had friends, family members who struggle with alcoholism, do I crack open a beer with somebody who, who is struggling with alcoholism? Absolutely not. Like that, would be, that would be a total violation and absolutely like a sin, causing that person to, to stumble. So, so God essentially kind of gives us bookends, biblically. That you can err kind of on both sides of the spectrum, right? That, that you can use this gift of God in a very unhealthy way um, and with drunkenness and such. But then there's the, the other side you can be just as wrong. And this is kind of the self-righteous attitude that I am more holy because I don't indulge or because I don't drink. And, and so God kind of gives us this, this book and it's like you can be wrong on, on both sides because both sides are wrong in God's eyes, biblically. So I just, it's an aside, like I feel like i got to say that, you know, i got to at least address the issue. Um, if you still, if you have questions or you're really angry at me, email me, uh, whatever, you know, email me, brian at mosaiclincoln.com. <laughs> but alcohol drinking is not the point of this passage, not even close. I mean, did you notice, did you catch what, what, what Jesus, do you see what Jesus is doing here? Did, did you, Jesus takes water from these giant barrels, these giant urns, and, and makes wine with them. And it's not just normal water, right? What kind of water is this? What does the text say? Ceremonial. Ceremonial water. Ceremonial water. Oh, I need to catch up with my notes here. I'm here for a while. Okay, I love this. Because what this is, this is, this is water. These, these waters in these vats is, is water used for ceremonial washing. All right, so if I was a Jew, 
and I interacted with a Gentile, somebody who was not Jewish, uh, I would be contaminated, essentially. Right? If we had a normal business, everyday transaction, uh, I would be contaminated. And basically anything could essentially contaminate me. And then what I would have to do is I would have to come and say certain uh, purifying rites and purify myself with this water that is in these urns. All right, and so essentially, this water in these urns is used to indicate uh, the separation of holy and unholy. Right? It is used to indicate that there are some people who are, are good and holy and lovable, and then there are people who are evil and despicable and unlovable. Right? Some are, some are good, some are bad, some are up, some are down, some are black, some are white. Some are worthy of our love, and some are not. Some are loved by God, and some are not. And Jesus takes that symbol, that, that symbol of separation, that there are clean, good, holy people, and evil, despicable, whatever people, and he uses that water to make a lot of wine for a drunken Galilean feast. So good is the wine, we're told, that when taken to the MC or the master of the banquet, he takes a sip of that wine and says, what kind of father are you? What kind of father are you? Right, normally at this point in the feast, right, people can't even spell it right, and you bring out the three-buck chuck, and people don't even notice. But not you. You have saved the best for last. This is the good stuff. This is the 17-year stuff. What kind of father are you? I mean, it's breathtaking, isn't it? And it's, and it's symbolism, and it's an intentionality. Basically what it's saying is Jesus saying, I am going to begin in the same way that I mean to continue. And what I mean to do is to shatter all those man-made religious distinctions between holy and unholy, good and bad, lovable and unlovable. Jesus produces magnificent wine from ceremonial washing water. Jesus is indicating something marvelous and beautiful about what it means to be his people and about the kind of God that God is. Because religious institutions, what they do is they, they work to create distinctions. They work to create separation between the people who are in and the people who are out. The people who are good, the people who are bad, the people who are lovable, and the people who are unlovable. And then Jesus steps in, he takes that, and he uses it to make more wine for people who have been on the outside. Essentially, right, to say, I will have none of this. I will have none of this. Heaven has come to earth in me. I am fully divine and fully human. And through my work on the cross and through my people, now the kingdom of heaven is bleeding out into the world. And I'm not going to put up with your mumbo-jumbo and all your distinctions about not being mature enough, not being good enough, not being right enough, not being lovable enough, not being whatever enough that you don't happen to like in your assemblies. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that exciting? What does it mean to, to be sent by Jesus into the world in the same way that the Father sent the Son? It means living and celebrating and loving and serving people with the kind of love and compassion and inclusivity that he showed when God took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. When he entered in the lives of ordinary people and loved them extravagantly, when he took on flesh and blood and walked alongside and embraced the very people who would disobey him, turn on him, betray him, and kill him. 
To be sent as Jesus was sent is to wade in into the crap, into the brokenness, into the messiness of ordinary people's lives, of broken people's lives, and to touch them with the love of God in the place that they need it most. I've shared this with some of you. In 2002, uh, I was down in the Dominican Republic uh, for a summer, and I lived uh, with a, a family in an impoverished community just outside the capital city, and was there with a very good friend of mine named Mark. And uh, we were down there working with Youth for Christ, and um, did a variety of different works, but every now and then we'd have American teams who would come on in, and uh, we would help lead their trips, do some teaching and training, help them get around the island, organize their work projects, stuff like this. And we had a, a particular team come in, and we took them to a leprosy camp. And leprosy is a preventable disease, and in most places in the world it no longer exists, but in certain places like the Dominican Republic, Nepal, um, it does for whatever reason. And the social stigma when it comes to leprosy is very much there, just like it was in biblical times. Right? These people are completely removed from the general population. Um, when we went to this particular camp, uh, it's, it's, it's a death camp is what it is. It's a gated community, walls 15 feet high with barbed wire. The people are brought in, dropped off. They never see their family or friends ever again. They are, they are put there to die. And so we went there and we took this team of you know, 30 high school kids. And part of the reason we were there was just to be present. Um, I think probably as much of it uh, was about us as it was about them. You know, but for many of these, these people, and, and with leprosy, you know, one of the way that leprosy overtakes the body is you, you begin to lose feeling in your extremities. Usually it begins with your fingers or your toes. And those parts of your body will actually die off and fall off. And it usually begins with your fingers, your toes, um, then it'll often be your hands and your feet, sometimes your full limbs, um, ears, nose. And so, like, visibly, physically, it is absolutely devastating. Absolutely. It is shocking to your system to see that kind of loss and suffering. And so we walk in, and we have spent the afternoon there, and we were working our way through these rooms where these people are kept. And we made our way into this one room, and this particular man had lost both arms, both legs, um, had open sores, you know, and obviously when you have open sores and they're not treated, uh, often have infection, and this, this guy was just in rough shape, almost unrecognizable as being human. And honestly, for me, I didn't move. Like, I just stood frozen in the doorway of this room, most of us did, not knowing what to do. I don't know, how do you respond to that? And then we watched something that has left just an indelible impact on me. I watched my friend Mark kind of push past us and walk across the room. And he sat down next to this guy and embraced him. Just wrapped his arms around him. Infection, disease and all. Open wounds and all. And the man just began to openly wail and weep because it had been years since he had felt physical human touch. And Mark just prayed over him and embraced this man. We had to come get Mark when we left because he refused to leave. And that night when we were standing around as leaders, couldn't even talk about it. Couldn't even speak. Couldn't even speak of the holiness of that moment. But what we had witnessed, that Mark was willing to do what none of us had been willing to do. 
And that is a beautiful, shocking picture of what it means to be sent just as the Father sent the Son. Jesus was one who literally touched lepers, embraced lepers, and in doing so, in that moment, was deemed unclean by the religious community. What kind of God do you serve? Who embraces lepers, who steps into moments of shame, who meets people where they're at and loves them exactly as they are, who touches them with the presence of God in the, in the place where they need it most. To be sent like Jesus is to wade into the brokenness and the crap. The ordinary and the extraordinary. The celebration and the shame of people who don't know Jesus. But to lay our hands on the open wounds. And to be the presence of God where the presence of God is needed most. Or do, you, do you see why other religions, and especially religions like Islam, think what we believe is so blasphemous? almost unspeakable. But that God is not up there, but that God is right here for those of us who have confessed our sin and are following Jesus as his disciples. That the kingdom of God lies in you and in me. And then Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. Go and be the presence of God in your families in your neighborhoods, in your city. So a couple of clarifying guiding questions. Right? Just guiding questions for you to stir on right, as we wrap up. If we were to take the call of Jesus seriously, how ought we to be spending our time? And where ought we to be spending our time? What kind of people should we keep, keep company with? Perhaps we should be asking, what should our reputation be? Jesus was called a drunk and a glutton. Now, did Jesus ever get drunk? No. Was Jesus a glutton? No. Was Jesus a friend of sinners? Yes. But did Jesus ever sin? No. The Bible is very clear about that. He was the perfect sacrifice. Lived the life we couldn't live. Died the death we should have died in our place. But Jesus had a reputation. Jesus had a reputation in the religious community as being a drunk and a glutton, and a friend of sinners. May we all have such tarnished reputations. Maybe our prayer should be, you know, may we have a reputation for being dirty amongst the self-righteous. Or may the self-righteous call us dirty so that sinners may call us friends. And what should our reputation, what should your reputation be amongst the self-righteous and the sinners? Or self-righteous and the self-proclaimed religious. Amongst the sinners, what should your reputation be there? Jesus, Jesus was a friend. So let me ask you, right, just do, and we're all sinners, right? We get that? We're all sinners. I'm talking about the notorious ones who wear it here. You know, how do those people respond to you? Do they like being around you? Do they love being around you? Do they feel loved and valued? Do they find themselves drawn to you the way they were drawn to Jesus because of the way that you treat them, the way that you live your life? And then lastly, I think the, the deeper question, the overarching question, is what does the presence of God look like in the spaces that we find ourselves? Right, last week we talked about the three spaces, right? We talked about different relational spaces. What does the presence of God look like there? In your family? In your marriage? 
your extended family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in the city. And lastly, where, as we look across the city, as we look at our city, and we look at our relationships and the people that we know, where's the bleeding? Where are the open wounds? Because wherever that is, that's where Jesus is. And that's where we've been called to be. Just as the Father has sent the Son, so I am sending you. Let's pray. Father God, we just confess to you the remnants of religiosity that find themselves in the spaces like this. Jesus, we confess to you how good it sometimes feels to feel like we're on the inside and there's other people on the outside. We confess to you, Jesus, the way in which we waste our time with religious mumbo-jumbo while the world breathes. Jesus, may we be a people who are messed up by the gospel, messed up by what you did on the cross, and messed up by the great calling on our lives. Jesus, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Give us the courage and the love and the selflessness to step into those open wounds and to embrace those who have never been free, who have never experienced your love or your grace. Jesus, we thank you that you did not stay far away as often religion has stayed far away. That Jesus, you, God in the flesh, that you took on flesh and blood and walked amongst us, lived the life we could not live, died the death we should have for us. And now as your people, God, we ask that you would use us in ways that we can not even imagine. Help us to see the broken and the bleeding all around us. Turn this city upside down with your grace. Turn our lives upside down with your grace. We love you. And we pray all these things together as a community. Amen. Well, hey, we're going to take our offering at this time. Um, if you are a guest with us, you need to know that this particular part of the service is not for you. Uh, let the offering basket pass you by. Um, that's only for people who call Mosaic home and wish to wish to worship God financially and invest in the ministry of Mosaic here. Uh, but if you're a guest, uh, that's not for you. You're just our guest. Just sit and be. Uh, don't feel guilty. Just you know, go on by. Um, also, I do have one announcement. Uh, something coming up, and this is for you ladies, uh, for uh, Mosaic uh, Women's Ministry. Guys, you're not invited. Sorry. Uh, but June 22nd and 23rd, uh, there's going to be the first um, Mosaic Women's Ministry Retreat. Uh, it's going to be in town. Uh, you don't have to leave town. You can sleep in your own beds. Ten bucks. Um, but that's, I just want to give that to you now so you can pencil that in June 22nd and 23rd. I think that's all I got. So, uh, if you would, stand and we will end by worshiping Jesus together enough.